this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at a small book in the Old Testament of the Bible called Habakkuk. And uh, you might not have a lot of familiarity with Habakkuk, and that's okay. Hopefully, you'll have a little bit more by the time we're done together. I put a link in the uh, chat of the stream um, that you can check out from the Bible Project. Um, or if you don't see it there, and you can just search later, Bible Project Habakkuk, and they have a short video I think is really helpful. The Bible Project does amazing stuff of helping to understand the Bible, and I think it'll be a help um, to you and to us as we study this book together. So check that out. But I chose um, for us to study Habakkuk because Habakkuk, like us, was living in a time of great confusion and turmoil and what felt like destruction all around him. And, you know, our ancestors in the faith, often we don't give them enough credit for, for what they gleaned from encountering God. And time with Habakkuk is almost like going with Habakkuk to group therapy. You know, if you've ever been in a group therapy situation and there's someone there that has been doing the work for a long time, and they can really help bring someone that's experiencing things maybe for the first time, help bring us along. So as Habakkuk encounters God in a time of craziness and turmoil, he, he finds things um, that are deeper and truer and more beautiful and full of hope than he could have imagined. And I want to say thanks to, um, to the Bible Project and to my dear friend Palmer Robertson, who wrote, who's part of our church, who wrote a great commentary on Habakkuk to help me a lot. So if you have a Bible with you or you want to pull up on your screen, you can do that. We won't have the words on the screen. Um, you can look if you want, but the way that God's people throughout time have received the word is by hearing it and by listening. So I'm going to walk us through part of not read every verse in the first two chapters, but walk us through so we get an idea of this word. This is the word of the living God. May he bless it as we read it together. Habakkuk, starting in at the very beginning. This is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is complaining directly to God about God's special people, the nation of Israel that he had set as a shining star in the world to what God is like. And he's saying that, they have gotten off track. They are, they are refusing to love you. They're refusing to love their neighbor and instead have moved into violence and oppression and um, a trampling of the poor. And this is what God has to say to him in response. God says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans a.k.a. the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, 
more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their own God. What God tells Habakkuk is, yes, my people have been unfaithful and are a mess and unjust, and I'm going to bring Babylon to wipe them out. And so uh, that's understandably concerning for Habakkuk. And he says this, starting in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them, the Babylonians, as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's like, how can you send the Babylonians to wipe out your people? The Babylonians are even worse than God's people. And then he says, starting at the beginning of chapter 2, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And this is what the Lord says to him. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. May the Lord bless his word. He goes on to say at the, throughout the rest of chapter 2, take time to read it if you can today, you can meditate. He, the Lord declares five woes on Babylon, and they're really woes on his people as well as his people have joined in the same kinds of oppression that Babylon does. He says that they have unjust economics that oppress the poor and declares woe on them, that they dehumanize other people and treat them like animals and how they make them work. Woe on that. He declares woe on their irresponsible and drunken leaders. And he declares woe on their worship of power and of national security. It's a heavy word. And uh, I don't know about you and how you've been doing quarantine. It's been so many months now. Um, But our family started out quarantine just trying to make it through the day. You know, as long as we were all still standing at the end of the day and like had eaten supper, that was a win with everyone home 24-7, no school, no play dates, no work. But now, through this, God has shown us new ways of being together that we didn't even know before. We're like playing board games as a, as a family. And I think we're averaging like four or five homemade pies a week which was not part of our life before. Some of them are mixing up pudding and making a pie, but yesterday my wife made a killer strawberry rhubarb pie. I'm like, who is this woman making pies in my house? And it's often 
that when we become the most uncomfortable, that God lets us see something new and beautiful and deeper and truer than we knew was there before. And Habakkuk shows us in this conversation with God how times of confusion and destruction can help us learn to do two things. To lament about the brokenness of the world and how to live by faith. And we're going to look at that this week and next week. And so Habakkuk starts out this, and he does this thing. I wonder if you ever do it. He just complains straight to God. You know, you, you can do that. You can just sit down with God and tell him, Lord, things are really messed up. Here's all the messed up stuff I see in the world, and God invites that. You can do that anytime, and that's what Habakkuk did. He says, the, the people that are supposed to trust in you, God, have rejected you, rejected your rule over them about how you've told them to live. And those in power are violent and they don't do justice and they trample the poor. And so then when God says, I'm going to send the Babylonians to wipe them out, this big bordering nation that was just beginning to come into power, you know, Habakkuk is distressed. He's like, they're worse than us. I mean, remember back in the day when we used to go to restaurants and eat in them? How strange. People all around you opening their mouths and talking and putting food in it with all the particles flying everywhere. Um, strange days those were. But, you know, maybe you, were, you ordered some, some fried chicken and, one, you know, you got to cook it through on the thigh. The thigh maybe wasn't all the way cooked through, so you send it back. And then the server brings you back out just a straight-up raw piece of chicken and says, will, will this solve the problem for you? That's how Habakkuk feels about God's Answer, the Babylonians gobble up the weak worse than Israel does. They completely deny justice. They treat human beings like animals, and they worship their own power like it's a god. Habakkuk sees those things in Babylon and in Israel, and he grieves them. He laments over the, what he sees in the world, the evil he sees in the world. And I'm telling you all, the ancestors were wise and how they approached God. Because what Habakkuk begins to understand through this time with God is something that I think that we are experiencing even now, and actually God's people have experienced throughout the ages and will continue to experience until the end of time, which is that God is actually ruling over a world that is full of empires and nations that all eventually become like Babylon. And very often, God's people allow ourselves to get caught up in the intoxication of their power, of the comfort and wealth. And God presides over all the empires of the world and throughout time like a baker with a big old lump of bread dough. And what he does is he needs the nations of the world and needs even time. And he stretches and pulls and presses down and he allows it to rise and to become puffed up again. And these nations rise and then he squashes them and flattens them down again. They get puffed up and full of themselves and God needs it all down again and again as he rules the world with justice. And Habakkuk grieves it all. And that rising and falling and kneading and stretching and pressing down, 
is a reminder to us, and maybe even a wake up to us, if you follow Jesus, and as you experience that rising and falling, and this is God's word to us in that, is that God has not made promises to any of the nations or empires or states of the world except to bring them down once they rise. Because God has this alternate thing, the kingdom of God, which he has brought into the world through Jesus. And the kingdom of God cuts across every cultural, national, ethnic, socioeconomic dividing line through time and throughout the earth. And he's made promises to that kingdom and not to our kingdoms. He did not make promises to the Tang, Ming, or Han dynasties or any of the dynasties of China. He hasn't made promises to the Roman Empire, to the British Empire, not to any of the dynasties or monarchs of India, not to the United States of America, not to white America, and not to black America, not to Western civilization, and God hasn't made promises even to democracy itself. What he has said is that the nations and empires and peoples of the earth will rise and fall. But that his kingdom and the beloved citizens of his kingdom will endure forever. I had this beautiful experience talking with a sister who follows Jesus, who is of Palestinian heritage. And she told me this glorious story of a time where she had danced before the Lord and sang songs to the Lord with a follower of Jesus of Jewish, of Israeli descent. They are enemies, full of of bitterness in their stories of their states and places as they've risen and fallen and done harm to against each other, but they danced together because they belong to the kingdom. That's the kingdom, and it's real. And what God is doing with this kingdom as he does that needing work of the nations is that he has tossed the people of his kingdom into that lump like yeast that he works in to the dough. Jesus actually said that the kingdom of God is like a woman who took a little yeast and hid it in a bunch of bread flour. And it got worked through the whole batch so that it was in everything. And this tiny microorganism, yeast or leaven, is actually what brings life to the dead ingredients of the lump. And if you follow Jesus which there's no assumption that you do, but an invitation that you can and must. If you follow Jesus, that is your place in all this rising and falling, is to be worked in and to bring life, whether it's the, we're experiencing the rising of an empire and experiencing its comfort and prosperity, or whether it is all crashing down around you. We live in the hands of the only one who knows what he is doing. And he is actually heating us up and activating us and putting us to good work, work that we can't even begin to understand what it will be. 
And when I read stuff like that, I'm like, y'all, maybe there's something to this Bible, this word, and what it tells us about God. And so how does all of that help us make sense of a confusing time that we find ourselves in? One, one thing that is brought to mind for me is that many in the church, people that follow Jesus, feel like the society that we live in in our moment was once a place where truth and Jesus reigned, but it is now being devoured by Babylon. That our society is becoming less and less faithful to God. And the feeling there for them is loss as they see a falling. But, you know, I spent a lot of years doing college ministry and talking with students on campus. Um, that was how I came to faith, and that was what I thought I would always be doing. And for all those years that I spent on campus, what I heard again and again was that younger Christians, they don't feel that way. And of course, that makes sense. If things are constantly rising and falling, we're going to have different experiences, even generationally, of what's even going on in our moment. But younger Christians that I've talked to often, they don't sense that there was ever much faithfulness to God in the first place in our society. They see little difference between God's people and just everyone else. They don't feel that our nation has been set apart or is special. And a part of that is because they, like Habakkuk, see and are aware of how our systems in our society grind up the poor and those on the margins. And they are grieved, like Habakkuk. And you know what they feel like? And this is what has given me so much energy, is they feel like what the church has called missionaries. In Redeemer world, we use the term cross-cultural worker, which I love. Christians who are following Jesus very often now feel like they are in a different culture and that they bring something to bear of this kingdom to a culture that uh, is foreign to them. This last week I saw this uh, great Instagram post. Of, I'm going I'm to butcher these people's names. Um, have grace. Uh, a couple that are 83 and 84 years old, and they own a laundry service in Taiwan, named, and their names are Chang Wan Ji and Su Shou Er. And they own this laundry service, and what these owners do is when people have left their clothes and discarded them and never came back for them, they put them on, and I think it's their grandson that, that styles them, and they take pictures of them wearing these clothes on Instagram. And, and posing in these clothes. They're, they're amazing. Uh, look it up later. And it's hilarious because they seem so out of place in these clothes and so hip and fashionable. And it, I know it's got to feel uncomfortable for them even as they embrace the, the hipness of what they're wearing. And what God, I think, is calling us to and what the younger generation of Christians are showing us is that the, the garments of our king, Jesus, the garments of the kingdom ha, are always being discarded and left behind. And they want to put those garments on as strange as it might seem and live in a place that is not their home. 
They feel like they've been sent from a foreign land where truth and justice and mercy and love reign. And this is not to say that young people get it all right and folks that have been around along don't. That's, that's not what I mean at all, but just how we experience the world around us. Younger folks sense that the Ten Commandments have been torn in two and that loving God and loving our neighbor have been separated from each other. And what they want is them to be reunited. That's what kingdom people want, is for people to actually love God and love their neighbor and thrive. And so what they grieve and what we must grieve if we follow Jesus are the same as the woes that God declared on Babylon. If you, if you remember them, the, the unjust economic practices, the oppressed the poor, the worshiping of, of their power. You know, some of the things that, that grieve, should grieve us is how many pile up wealth while innumerably many more do not have what they need. That you can't afford decent rent in our society even if you work a full-time minimum wage job and you can't support a family. Financial systems, many of them exist to prey on the poor and the door to mobility is so often slammed in the face of those on the margins. Many women feel that they must choose between their dreams or financial stability or their education and having a family, having children. There's so much fear there. Our society has a deep and strangely spiritual comfort in having a dominant military. And we consume at a completely unsustainable rate that plunders God's creation and makes poor communities even more vulnerable. And the question for us in hearing those things is, is not really why they are, or necessarily what to do about it, but simply to ask, if you follow Jesus, are you available for other people's pain? Will you allow yourself to grieve those signs of a broken world full of broken systems that crush people? Because if you follow Jesus, y'all, Jesus is available for that pain. And he is available for your pain. Jesus, the king of the kingdom and the ruler of all the nations, he himself was crushed by these systems. Crushed by the corrupt and oppressive systems of the state and of self-serving religion. At the cross, he was decimated. And oh, how he grieved it. Oh, how he lamented for us. And if you are not grieving with him, are you really with him? Could you be saluting or bending the knee to the world and its systems because they have been beneficial to you? And again, I'm not telling you what to do or who's to blame, but simply to ask, where does your loyalty lie? Where does my loyalty lie? It's often in the things that make me feel the most safe. And the, the time comes for us again and again to make our choice and to not delay. And if you're wondering where your loyalties lie, they may become clear when you begin to ask the question, what makes me defensive? What am I unwilling to be challenged on? 
And if you allow yourself to name that, you can begin to move. And hasn't this COVID time actually helped each of us see how fleeting all of our comfort structures are and the ways that we like to make ourselves safe? We're unsure about the future. And y'all, anything that allows you to not live by faith is a disloyalty to Jesus. And it ends in death because God will judge everything that is not done in faith. But right there, that's where the promise and the good news is. In, in verse 4 in chapter 2, God says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within the, someone that's puffed up, arrogant, defensive, claiming strength. They can't live, but the righteous shall live by their faith. Put another way, the one who is right with God shall live by their steadfast trust in God. As a noted scholar and theologian who, again, is near to my heart, Palmer Robertson has said, by steadfast trust through the darkest of times, the people of God shall live. God wants you to live and not to die. Jesus came that we may have life overflowing for he himself is our life. Give yourself to him. He's the only one that can make you safe and give you life. Grieve with him. Lament with him. Love with him. But y'all, I don't know how to be loyal to Jesus. The world is too loud. It's too enticing. And you don't know how to be loyal to Jesus either. I saw a quote from a Frenchman named Jules Renard, and Susan will probably fix my French pronunciation later. But he said, I am not sincere, even when I say I am not. We are not loyal even when we say we are not. But Jesus is loyal to us if we come to him by faith. He is our loyalty. In this crazy time, y'all, I, I, was, I was just like, I know we got to keep our eye on the ball. we got to focus on what we got to focus on. But I don't know what the ball is. And so I reached out to my friend, a mentor named Karen. And I'm like, Karen, you know the answer. And she said, I've been asking the same question, so I reached out to my friend who's a pastor in Iran, and I asked him the same question. He's struggling with the same question. How do we remain, uh, how do we stay focused on what we need to focus on? And he said to her what she said to me, what I say to you, which is return to first loves. Pray. Commit yourself to being loyal to Jesus. This is spiritual, y'all. It's deeply spiritual. And is God providing opportunity for you in all this to return at a spiritual level to loyalty to him? Because um, it's going to feel like this, and we'll close with this. When my oldest daughter, Georgia, was, was a baby, my wife and I went to the beach and um, it was sort of the beginning of the, uh, of the fall, I remember, because she was very pregnant with our second daughter. 
and uh, it was kind of gray, and I was out in the water about waist deep holding my baby girl in the ocean, and my wife, Sarah, kept saying, be, you know, be careful, be, be careful, you know, as you should with a baby, and I was like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, until this riptide, which you can never see, just pulled my feet right out from under me, and I fell into the water and under the water, and all I could do as I was churned up was simply to hold my daughter out of the water as I was turned around like being in a washing machine. And what Jesus does for us as the world churns around us and we are caught up in that is if we put our trust in him, he holds us out that we might live. And eventually my wife came and she was able to take Georgia up in her arms and I was able to rise again from that churn. And Jesus is going to pull us out as he himself rises from that churn. And when he returns, he will hold his people in his arms as the knowledge of the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Trust or faith, they're so synonymous. They're just deciding to stay with Jesus instead of trusting and having faith in that which makes us feel safe and secure. And he is the one who makes us bring life to this world, to be a cross-cultural worker that has life and hope and joy for the future, never totally at home, but always doing good. How has this time provided opportunity for you to ask a simple question? Will you be loyal to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we need you. We need you to hold us. Lord, we are a mess. We turn aside to all these things, and you know that, and you give grace. So Lord, teach us. Give us courage from your spirit to turn away from that which is intoxicating around us and to hold fast to you, to uh, be available to the pain of our neighbor to the pain that we're experiencing, and through that pain to find joy and hope. Teach us to be loyal to you, O our King. We pray, King Jesus, in your name. Amen.